Hello. Thank you for joining us. We're proud to welcome you to our special series, In Chains, brought to you by Brill, where we talk about the history and the current state of slavery and human trafficking. I'm your host, Lee Jung Greco. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Alexis Aronowitz. She's the author of Regulating Business Involvement in Labor Exploitation and Human Trafficking. Dr. Aronowitz, thank you again for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. So you talk in this article about government-led regulations, industry-led regulations uh, when it comes to combating forced labor. But I want to open up with what the workers have done in this movement. Uh, You talk about workers who filed a petition through change.org claiming they were victims of forced labor at CJ's Seafood in Louisiana, which produced seafood for Walmart. And ultimately, Walmart suspended its contract as a result of this, and the Department of Labor investigated CJ Seafood. How do you rate the effectiveness of worker-led measures over legislation and supply chain monitoring? That's a very good question, and I think it's difficult to answer. Most of the time, workers are not in a position to assert their rights Very often, they may be working in foreign countries. They may be undocumented migrants with the risk of being arrested and deported if they complain. Um, And of course, their integrity needs to be protected. Their, Their lives need to be protected. So consequently, by themselves, they have very, very little power. However, if they receive the backing of either international organizations, national or NGOs, or the press, Uh, I think that they have enough power to regulate and make a change. And in the case of um, CJ Seafood, they were supported by uh, an an organization that fought for their rights. They helped them produce this um, petition that they put up on change.org. And as a result of 100,000 signatures, uh, they were able to uh, gain the attention of the press and, uh, and, and affect a change. Walmart did cancel its contract with CJ Seafood. And as a matter of fact, the US government made a ruling requiring that the company pay uh, remunerations to the workers there. However, that often doesn't happen. And I'd, I'd like to call your attention to what's going on in the Gulf states right now. Um, the Guardian actually has been documenting this for a year. So the press is also extremely important in calling attention to the public of some of these abuses going on in companies. Um, But the the press has documented for years the abuses going on in the building of the stadiums for the 2022 World Soccer Cup. Thousands of workers from East Asian countries, so from India, from Nepal, from Sri Lanka, have died during the building of these stadiums. There have been other reports of human rights abuses in the building of the Louvre in uh, Abu Dhabi um, and the Guggenheim Museum and New York University. And these abuses have been documented by Human Rights Watch, by the ILO and the International Trade Union Confederation, as well as the press. And I think it's only at that point that we are able to really protect workers' rights 
If we can even get to that point, I don't think that we've done enough to protect the rights of workers in the Gulf states. Um, I think also we as consumers play a very, very important role in all of this. Um, we are the ones who create the demand. And whether this demand is for uh, sexual exploitation of children, sexual exploitation of, of young men or women, uh, or whether it's to buy cheap clothing or cheap food, we are the ones ultimately responsible uh, in the supply chain for the abuse of workers. And I think until we are educated and we start demanding that companies from whom we purchase our food and our goods recognize and respect the rights of human workers, I'm not sure that a lot will be done about that. We don't realize how much power we as consumers, as fans, as as uh, yeah, as 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 purchasers of of products have in influencing companies. Companies care about their reputation, and the reputational loss for large companies is so. It, it's a death knoll for them. And it was a very similar case involving Hershey's chocolate, where uh, there was a petition opened up at change.org to force Hershey, Hershey's chocolate to ensure that there was no forced labor or child slave labor used in the production of their cocoa. Um, and, and Hershey's actually capitulated um, and agreed to uh, purchasing sustainable chocolate. So there have been numerous cases of companies that have, uh, that have after negative press, uh, changed, uh, changed their, 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 uh, per, their, 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 oh my goodness, changed how they um, obtain products for their supply chain. So we do we do have a role in all of this. And I think this is why it's so important that we are educated about human trafficking and about human rights and labor and, and abuses in the labor uh, supply chains. Let's actually talk about chocolate a little bit more specifically, the cocoa industry, because I think it's important that we note to our listeners that, yes, while Hershey's chocolate, that's a good example of a business um, that has sort of righted the ship, so to speak, when it comes to human rights abuses, uh, that the international cocoa industry, as you note in this article, um, still has major problems. Um, you note that despite multi-stakeholder initiatives, multiple rounds of funding, child and forced labor remains a problem in the cocoa industry. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about legislative initiatives like the Harkin Angle Protocol, uh, which came out of the US. What did that aim to do and why did it ultimately fall short of its goal? The, 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 the Harkin-Engel protocol really intended to uh, stimulate the industry itself to um, uh, commit to uh, fulfilling the intent of the legislation and providing American consumers with a reasonable assurance that no child labor was used in the production of chocolate products. So it really was not to punish the, the, the industry, but to stimulate them to take the initiative to uh, regulate labor and, and ensure that child labor was not used. Um, I talk about the ILAB report. The Bureau of International Labor Affairs produces a report, this is from the Department of Labor, every year looking at goods in different countries that are produced with child and forced labor. And the report that I refer to in my article was the 200, excuse me, 2016 report 
And in this report, the iLab identified 139 goods in 75 countries that were produced with either child labor, forced labor, or a combination of both. And unfortunately, the 2020 report that was uh, released in September 30th, so it's a very recent report, identifies 155 goods in 77 countries produced with child or forced labor. So actually, they've identified more goods in more countries. I went back and looked at the countries that I had identified that were using child or forced labor in the production of cocoa, and all of these countries are still identified as countries involving either child labor or forced labor. So it appears that you know we're not making the progress that we would like to be making. But there's something very interesting about this report, and this report identifies uh, the most recent report, 218 million children working and these are estimates worldwide. And of these, 152 children have been identified in child labor. And of these, 73 million children have been engaged in hazardous child labor. And the report goes on to say that we don't have estimates for the most hazardous forms of child labor that are identified in the ILO uh, Convention 182. Um, I think you can put child labor, working children, child labor, hazardous child labor, and the most extreme forms of hazardous child labor on a continuum. I think what we're seeing is this. I think that there have been um, improvements in the cocoa industry. I don't think that we're there yet, but what has to happen is this. We can't just simply ban child labor move children off of cocoa plantations and not find a way to support the families whose children have been working on these cocoa plantations. Um, I was in, I was doing some work for the UN in Africa a number of years ago, and we were talking with a representative from, um, from ECPAT International, and oh, excuse me, from UNICEF. And this individual said to us, you come down here and you to Africa and you tell us that we need to eradicate child labor. But what you don't seem to understand, because you're coming from Western countries where child labor is prohibited, what you don't understand is that if we ban child labor, families don't eat. And if we take children out of fields, if we take children out of markets, if we take children out of, 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 of other areas where they're working, we're liable to put female children at risk of being prostituted. So he said, our goal at UNICEF is not to ban child labor, but to find some sort of a balance between children working in non-hazardous jobs and being able to help support their families while they're also going to school. So what we really need to find out now is whether or not children who prior to uh, the Harkin Engel protocol, and prior to the intervention of the uh, large chocolate companies, whether these children were exposed to extremely hazardous situation. If you read some of the reports of organizations that were doing work down there, that was the case. Um, there is monitoring going on. Um, some of these reports indicate that there are fewer children found on these cocoa plantations, and when they are found, very often these children are the children of workers on the cocoa plantation. So there is some form of supervision by the parents. Um, the conditions for children appear to be better. However, that said, and, and there are, I wanna say there are a number of sort of voluntary um, 
um, certification schemes. Okay, so we have now in different parts of the world the Rainforest Alliance, Alliance Sustainable Agricultural Standards. So you'll see Rainforest Alliance stamped on chocolate bars. There's fair, fair trade certification standards. UTZ, which is the one that we have all over Europe. I don't think I've bought chocolate in the last two or three years that has not had UTZ stamp on it. And of course, Starbucks has its own cocoa standard. So there are these certification schemes that are supposed to monitor um, the supply chain, okay? That being said, there are a number of problems with this. Number one, uh, when the monitoring occurs, is this monitoring um, uh, done by the companies themselves or are these third-party monitors? You know, are, are these NGOs possibly that are coming in to, to monitor the conditions? Because of course the question is whether or not companies actually understand enough about human rights abuses to understand what it is that they're even looking at, okay? So does monitoring occur? Who's doing the monitoring? Is the monitoring unannounced? Because if you don't have unannounced monitoring on these cocoa plantations, you announce your monitoring, the children disappear, and then a day later, they're brought back to be exploited. So you need to have unannounced monitoring. And of course, the other thing that you really need to have put in place is that you need to, if children are identified, you need to be able to rescue them, remove them, and rehabilitate these children. That means sometimes children need to be given uh, birth certificates. They need to be given, their families need to be given money to help support them. And I'm not sure that that's what's actually occurring in the industry. So until we can find a way to uh, supplement the income of the families, it may be that we're still seeing families sending their children into the cocoa industry to work. Um, I, I do believe that we have made progress, but I don't think that we're there yet. I want to move over to the United States where you highlighted uh, two training programs uh, that you said were very successful in recognizing the signs of human trafficking. That was the Truckers Against Trafficking and the Blue Lightning Initiative, which trains airline personnel. Um, can you just talk about those two programs, what they do, and how effective they are? Absolutely. Um, but there, these, these two, I highlighted these two programs and I found them very interesting because they're both very, very different. One is a bottom-up industry-initiated program. That's the tra Truckers Against Trafficking. And the other uh, was a, uh, the Blue Lightning program was a collaboration between numerous U.S. government agencies and the airline industry. So that was really almost a, a, a top-down approach. That was part of the FAA Extension Safety and Security Act of 2016. Okay, and that act required all air carriers to provide initial and annual flight attendant training regarding recognizing and responding to potential trafficking, human trafficking victims. Okay, so these are actually very, very different programs. I will say that it's very, very difficult to um, assess the, the uh, success of these or the measures that these programs have accomplished. And one of the reasons is because it's very difficult to measure what you have prevented, okay? So basically with what we're dealing with in both of these programs is anecdotal evidence of success, meaning that the Truckers Against Trafficking has identified a number in their, they report annually on their programs. They um, talk about a number of victims who were actually identified and rescued by truck truckers. Um, there was a case of an airline, uh, airline stewardess, um, flight attendant, who uh, saw a child on a flight, two children on a flight actually, who uh, 
apparently the, 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 the guardian didn't seem to be terribly concerned about their well-being. She found that very suspicious, had undergone this training, reported it. And as a result of investigation, the U.S. government was able to uncover a, um, a major trafficking ring, bringing children in from South America into the United States to be exploited. So we do have anecdotal evidence that these programs have accomplished what they want to do. However, what we very often are looking at are proxy measures of effectiveness. And by this, we look at uh, the number of people trained. So we can talk about tens of thousands of people trained, but are we actually accomplishing what we want to do? Have we actually rescued any victims? Okay. We can talk about, for instance, the number of calls to national hotlines or local police. Uh, the calls that go into the national hotline or to the local police are very often suspicions or tips that may or may not result in arrest or the rescue of victims. Um, we hear about them when they are successful, but we don't, of course, hear about them when they are not successful. So even if you look at the national tip line or the national hotline, uh, anti-trafficking hotline, you'll see a number of calls coming in, but you don't necessarily see what happens with those calls. And in that sense, I think it's it's difficult to, to measure the success of any of these programs. That having been said, if we didn't have those programs, those, those few people that were actually identified and rescued uh, would not have been rescued. So I think that we need to have these programs, but I think it's difficult. I think we're always looking for numbers. You know, we're always looking to quantify the success of our programs. And that's very, very difficult to do in human trafficking. There are a number of other programs um, that, you know, that, that I'll talk about in just a second. But I will say um, the, the inability to empirically measure success is due to a lack of public data. So we don't know how many victims there were before we train airline personnel and how many victims there are after we train airline personnel. One of the reasons why it's so difficult to measure success of this, these two programs or any of the other programs is because we don't have baseline statistics. So we don't know what trafficking looked like prior to the implementation of this program and then measure the same phenomena after the implementation of the program to see whether or not there's been a, a reduction in the number of trafficking cases. We don't have accurate statistics at all to begin with. Uh, the number of people that are actually identified by NGOs or uh, police or law enforcement agencies really is simply the tip of the iceberg. Um, estimates are astronomical compared to the actual number of victims that we identify. So we're, we're, we're working sort of in this vacuum. We don't actually know what the numbers are. We don't have baseline statistics. Victims themselves are unwilling to come forward. So there are situations in which um, individuals have been identified as presumed or suspected victims of trafficking and they themselves refuse to self-identify, meaning they refuse to admit that they are victims of trafficking, that they're being exploited. They'll tell law enforcement agencies, this is my boyfriend, this is not my pimp, this is not my trafficker. Uh, they may do that because they are unaware of the situation, because they're afraid of repercussions, or they're afraid of harm that may come to themselves, their family, or their children. So consequently, we're sort of working in a vacuum what we're doing is uh, looking at proxy measures. So instead of actually looking at the number of victims that we're rescuing, we're looking at the number of, um, of, of, of truckers who have been trained, the number of individuals in, in, in hotels that have been trained. We look at the number of, of, um, 
of, of brochures that we that we hand out, the number of, of, of podcasts we do, or the number of conferences that we hold. And this is how we measure the success of programs, but it's it's very, very difficult to get at what I would like to see. And what I would like to see is number one, how many victim, victims are we actually rescuing? And what are we doing to help these victims after we identify them? And I'm really glad that you brought up that point because I think that is one of the most difficult things for people to comprehend when it comes to human trafficking and human smuggling is just how covert this is. And the fact that, like you said, there are no numbers before and after showing you know, how many people are trafficked versus how many people are saved. Um, I, I find that again and again, as a journalist, I'm asked by other journalists when we're working on stories about human trafficking in the U.S., how many people were trafficked this year versus last year? And really, it's hard to quantify that, as you said. And so I think you explain that quite nicely there. I would. I'm glad that you asked this or, or mentioned this because this has always been something that that um, that, that that sort of perplexes me. Uh, I did a presentation at a conference uh, for the OSCE years ago, and I was contacted by one of the UK newspapers that wanted numbers. And I said to them, "I will not give you numbers. I have spent the second chapter of my book criticizing the numbers." Um, I said that I can tell you about why the numbers are so inaccurate, but numbers. Numbers only uncover what we're willing to invest in and look for and find. And so, you know, if you don't want to have a trafficking problem, you just don't look for the, you don't look for it. You don't look for victims and you won't have a trafficking problem. Your numbers will be very low. And the, the Netherlands has for years been, we're a very small country. We have about 17 million inhabitants. We've always had more trafficking uh, identified more trafficking victims than most of the surrounding countries with, with populations four times our size. And in part because we have an independent national rapporteur, which reports to the government on this. We have trained judges. We have trained labor inspectorates. We have trained police to look for trafficking. And we also identified presumed victims of trafficking, not confirmed, meaning that even if a victim says, I, I, I'm not a victim of trafficking, this is my boyfriend. I'm working as a prostitute, you know, and I give him all my money, but he's still my boyfriend. That person will be recorded as a presumed victim of trafficking. We have invested so much energy in trying to uncover trafficking in our country. Our numbers are very, very high compared to other countries that don't have the political will, that don't invest the 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 the, the training in in police and labor inspectorates, um, and and or maybe their legislation is is not good. They just simply have much lower numbers. So, you know, numbers are, are, are numbers are fluid. The if you uncover a very very large trafficking operation, and we've had some of these in the United States, um, particularly in labor exploitation, they tend to be much much larger than uh, than in, in sex uh, trafficking operations. There was one that I profiled in uh, one of my studies, looking at uh, it was uh, I think in, in the American Samoa. I would have to. I'll have to check that for you. Um, and there were 250 people uh, being exploited in a factory. This is going to shift the numbers dramatically from one year to the next. So 
There are numbers that are published in the U.S. Department of State Trafficking in Persons Report, and there's an actual trend. So you can see the numbers, you know, of victims, the number of prosecutions, which are extremely low, very disappointing. But the number of victims, they'll fluctuate from year to year. They generally have been climbing over the past, let's say, 10 years. But still, it's the tip. And, and this is this is worldwide, 70,000, if I remember correctly, 70,000 victims um, and, you know, the, the, the UN reports also in the tens of thousands, but yet the, uh, the ILO in conjunction with the Walk Free Foundation estimated 24.9 million people in modern day slavery a couple of years ago. So, you know, what, what we're talking about actual uncovered cases in the tens of thousands to uh, estimates in the millions. I think the truth is somewhere in between that. Well, I'm so glad you were able to delve into this. Uh, I really hope that more researchers, more journalists, and just anyone will listen to this episode and dig into your article because I feel that there is a lot of interest in human trafficking and sex trafficking right now in part because there's so much misinformation out there and disinformation out there about human trafficking that is going on. So I hope that people get the chance to read your work, understand a little bit more of the nuance behind that, um, and understand, as we mentioned, you know, there's more than just the numbers when we're talking about human trafficking. I, I would. I, I'm going to push something on your your your, your listeners. Um, I've written really extensively on human trafficking, and uh, a lot of what I've written can be downloaded, including my book, can be downloaded for free uh, from the internet. If you type in my name and human trafficking, human misery, the book will pop up on Google, and you can download that for free. And um, if you go on to uh, academia.edu, um, you can also download articles, not just mine, but, but, but countless articles on human trafficking all for free. So you don't have to have a subscription to an expensive journal. You can, uh, you can download a lot of these articles that, that academics have uploaded, uh, to academic EDU. Well, that's a good place to end it. Always nice to end with a good plug. Uh, Alexis, thank you so much again for taking the time to speak with us today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, and I hope your listeners have learned a little bit more about human trafficking. Dr. Alexis Aronowitz, she's author of Regulating Business Involvement in Labor Exploitation and Human Trafficking.